Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I am Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion cultural historian. My guest this week is a journalist, beauty editor, and expert, and novelist. Shirley Lord rose from working class Cockney Lass to one of the most influential people in the beauty industry through grit, good humor, and a passion for journalism. In June, I met with her in the very elegant, pale yellow living room of her East 60s duplex. Now 89, she opened up to me about all aspects of her life, career, and five marriages. As you'll hear, Shirley was born into a working-class family in the East End of London, and from a very early age aspired to be a journalist and author. With a single-minded commitment, she focused all of her attention and work towards this goal. Her journey from 16-year-old typist to a 21-year-old features writer and 24-year-old features editor is truly remarkable. While in an early marriage, she met Cyril Lord, the famous British carpet magnate, who fell in love with her during an interview. The fallout from this, their separate divorces, and subsequent marriage in January 1960, was front-page news in the UK. She found herself moving in the upper echelons of society, quite a change from the working-class world she grew up in. Controversy followed her when, in the early 70s, she left her loveless marriage with Cyril Lord for their architect, David Anderson, who she later married. She ran away to New York, where she was hired first by Harper's Bazaar, and then went to Vogue as beauty director. From 1975 to 1980, she was vice president of Helena Rubinstein, but returned to journalism and Vogue in 1980. A major player in the New York social scene throughout this time, in the mid-80s, Shirley was introduced to Abe Rosenthal, the legendary editor of the New York Times. The pair married in 1987 and settled into a hectic social life of galas and literary dinners, which was heavily profiled in the press. At the same time, Shirley wrote novels. Drawing on her deep knowledge of the beauty and fashion industries, they are in the same vein as Judith Krantz and Jackie Collins, wildly enjoyable reads that are perfect for whenever you need a true escape. I highly recommend them if you enjoy your fiction's salacious, saucy, and a little over the top. Since Rosenthal passed away in 2006, Shirley has continued with her charitable endeavors, occasional writing, and also found love again. We cover all of this and more in a very chatty and fun interview. Shirley is sharp and funny. Her decades as a renowned hostess are obvious, as is the ambition that helped her rise to such success at such a young age. This interview truly felt more like a chat between friends. While I edited out a lot of our segues into other subjects, I left some of it. Due to her years as a journalist, she couldn't help but ask me questions, especially around beauty, her area of expertise. Let me know if you like hearing these somewhat more personal back and forth. I usually try to edit myself out as much as possible to focus on the interview subjects, but I'm open to feedback. Also, there is a hum from her air conditioning that comes in and out throughout the conversation. Anyway, I really hope that you enjoy this interview with Shirley Lord. I know that I did. This interview puts forth a clear case for actively pushing for your dreams and believing in yourself, no matter your background or what stands in your way. There's a lot of inspiration to be found in the way that Shirley lived her life, the goals she achieved, and the happiness she has found. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing. Oh, that's a yeah. Where did you actually grow up? I in grew London? up in the East End. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which annoys me considerably because it's full of Georgian houses now. So where were they when I was growing up? <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to be known as a, a Cockney, which I was. Mm -hmm. I was a Cockney Sparrow. Did you... Whereabouts? What area? Uh, well, I was born in Clapton, mm -hmm. which is next door to Hackney. I was very blessed because I 
always knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote a letter to myself when I was 11 to be opened at 21, which I, which I still have, which of course I opened the next day. <laughs> and, and in it, I said I wanted to be an author, spelled E-R, unfortunately. But I was absolutely really determined to get to Fleet Street, mm-hmm. which was the street of ink at that time. And uh, I think when you have a goal, it's a lot easier because you don't get distracted. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really wanted to do. So I started in the typing pool of the Daily Mirror. I learned to type to On the Road to Mandalay. <laughs> as we all did in those days. And uh, the, that typing pool was about 40 strong. And when any one of the newspapers, the Sunday Pictorial, the Daily Mirror, um, was an evening paper as well, if anyone was sick, then you filled in. And so, of course, it was my idea of heaven to go to where the newspapers were. and. Uh, I suppose after not too long, about a year, there was somebody sick at Ravalli, which was the big military paper that the Daily Mirror then owned. And I went there to work for the managing editor because his secretary was ill or something like that. Can't remember now. And I never left. I mean, I I was kept on. So that was a great springboard to go forward. So I was writing then. When young people have asked me, as many have, you know, I long to be a journalist, I w- or I want to be a writer, I want to... I say, well, only one thing to do, and that's write. You know, you can't just talk about it, you have to do it. So I had my first pieces published in Rivali, and there was a very nice older woman who I think was the film critic, and she told me about a job that there was a vacancy on a woman's own in the fiction department. And that had a circulation of about four million a week. And I, I remember um, while I was there, another publication and the head man was a rather ferocious guy called um, James Drawbell. And uh, he called me into the office, his office and said, why do women read magazines? And I said, the right answer, I said, escape. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I, I was assistant fiction editor at Woman's Own, which really introduced me to a lot of writers, including people like Shirley Jackson, they published some very erudite writers. And he asked me, um, if I would be interested to be the actual fiction editor of Home Notes. When I even mention these names, they just sound, sounds like the Victorian age, which I guess it almost was. Well, Home Notes, I do not know, so. No, Home Notes was, made a lot of money for them. It was George News, and I was thrilled because on the wall outside the building on Southampton Street, had one of the blue tablets that they have in London, which said that W.S. Gilbert lived there. And I'm a great fan of Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. So I was very thrilled every day to go in what had been his house. And uh, I'm just trying to think the order. Home notes. 
You probably know more than I do. <laughs> well, no, I mean, not. I don't know. Actually, know of any. It of is this. all chronological. Yeah, I know. But this part, I wasn't able to, to find any sort of research other than you've been on Fleet Street. Yeah. And then, you know, I think at one, I found new found out that you were at the Evening Standard at some point. Yes. But um, that was sort of where. Well, from uh, I'm just trying to think. Yes, I think the next step was Woman and Beauty. So it was all and, and all in different departments: features, fiction, beauty, fashion. So I was learning all the time. Mm -hmm. And then I left for just a year, and I think I lied about my age because I was twenty, but I said I was twenty-one, and. Uh, I became a literary agent and also an artist. They had, uh, it was um, A.S. Knight was the art agency and Stephen Ask, which was A.S.K., was the literary agent. And I, and I earned a lot of, uh, for me at that time, was a lot of money, not today, of course. And, uh, but I was very unhappy. I missed just the whole atmosphere of uh, everything to do with writing and journalism. And so I was very fortunate that I got a job as the features editor, because I'm building up friendships and contacts. And I got a job as the features editor of Good Taste, which was, again, a terrible title, had nothing to do with food meaning what good taste is, but it was successful. From good taste, I went, I'm just trying to think when I went to interview Cyril Lord, because he was a multi-millionaire who would replace linoleum in the houses of people everywhere. It was carpet that you, carpet you could afford by Cyril Lord, which you could actually cut mm -hmm. and put in, and uh, it made a revolution in England. So I went to interview him, and. He fell in love with me. I guess you know all that. And, uh, but I still I wanted to keep on working. And we married, and through him, I met the owners of a very successful newspaper, nothing to do with the one today, called The Star, which was the oldest evening newspaper in England. And I became woman's editor, so I finally did land in Fleet Street. But there was a sort of a crooked deal went on, because there was a deal, the News Chronicle and the Star were owned by the same company. The Evening News, which had the biggest circulation in the world, actually, of an evening paper, wanted to get rid of it, and there was some financial manoeuvring. And part of the deal was that the Star had to close. So I was very upset because obviously being on the newspaper is what I wanted. But on my desk the next day came a letter from Anna Winter's father, Charles Winter, who was known as Chili Charlie because of his name and his demeanor. And I always say that Anna earned the art of the silence from him because he was the most very distinguished and brilliant, brilliant man. But he knew how to quell anything with silence because if you go full of something and you're met with silence it has quite an effect on you anyway that was a huge boost because the evening stand even though the star had a bigger circulation but it was shut down 
because of the negotiations over the News Chronicle. But the standard was a much wittier because of, because of Charles Winter. And I was in my element, just loved it. And at that time, I went to a cocktail party at the Dorchester that was given to release a film called The Chalk Garden. And in it was the daughter of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So that was quite a story. Her name was Caroline Maudling. His name was Reginald Maudling. At the party was a Hollywood producer, Russell. Anyway, he came up to me and said, we're wearing the same perfume. In those days, men didn't wear perfume. And I said, really? And he said, clothes back from the dry cleaners. It sounds so rude, but he was so amusing, so I, I wrote about it. And because of that, I got a call the same week from the publisher of Harper's Bazaar, saying, would I have a drink with him or tea or something? Do drink your tea. <laughs> and he said, would I be interested in moonlighting and writing The Beauty, which in those days was the lesser part of a magazine for Harper's Bazaar? So I said, absolutely. I loved it. And in those days, Harper's Bazaar was in Brook Street almost opposite Claridge's and was in the attic of the beautiful Tumhouse, whereas the fashion editors swanned about the sitting room floor. The Harper's Bazaar was a gorgeous magazine. And so I did the two things for quite a long time, as well as being married to Cyril Lord, which was a job in itself. Yeah, I mean, how did you balance all of that, it sounds? Well, I was very young and very into, I'm sure you could do the same. You know, if you love, if you love what you do. Mm -hmm. And in those days, the beauty department was nothing like as important. I mean, it came to be, of course, the thing that saved magazines. By the time I came to America, Harper's Bazaar and Vogue were as thin as menus. And uh, it was really the beauty. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I lived in Chester Square. I could walk to work. I mostly wrote my evening standard articles from Harper's Bazaar because I had this attic floor, which was lovely, over the rooftops. Didn't really go to, into the standard offices much. Anyway, then I was approached, which was a great mistake, but I was approached by the Evening News, which had a massive circulation and offered much more money. And I left to go there, which was a big mistake, because really the standard was so much chicer and uh, much more in keeping with my personality. But anyway, I, I wrote something called My Week, Later, when I left the news, I did write for the Sunday Express, uh, but that was very much in a, an occasional way, you know. Then Mr. Lord decided, with tax 95 pence in the pound, that, like many other very rich people, 
we were going to leave England and it meant you had to be out for a year and you could only come back for a certain number of days and you certainly have no property or anything like that which for me, I mean, I was sort of broken-hearted. We had my, my sons actually just going, Richard came with us, but my eldest son was at, went to boarding school to Stonyhurst. I felt really heartbroken about leaving Bazaar and then the evening news. And we traveled the world a bit like nomads and then settled in Barbados. That's when I wrote a bit for the Sunday Express and still for Harper's Bazaar. I carried on writing for Bazaar for quite a while, actually. But I certainly missed, and I love London. It was a time of difficulties, definitely. And then I ran away. (laughs) And I ran away to New York, not intending to stay here, because I'd actually been offered a job. At that time, he wasn't known at all. But I was offered a job by Rupert Murdoch, who had just bought the sum, but the day that I was actually signed the deal, the man who'd arranged it, it sounds like high drama, which it was, but on the Sunday, he collapsed playing tennis with friends of mine and died on the tennis court. The next day I was supposed to sit down with Mr. Murdoch, but it seemed like almost a directive, you know, go back to the States. So I did, and uh, I came in on an unusual visa. I think it was a B1, and it was an expert from Harper's Bazaar London to Harper's Bazaar New York, which was very nice because it meant I could come in. Mm-hmm. I had left Mr. Lord, run, run away, and uh, I was very much in love with someone who I luckily was able to marry later. Really, I think I did well in New York because I didn't believe I was going to stay there. I was sure I was going back to London. I don't know if it's too personal, but when you were deciding to leave, how long, well, first of all, how long were you in the Barbados? Oh, not very long, really. I'd say uh, four years. Yeah, and traveled from there, of yeah. course. And then, yeah. and you, I'm assuming that it wasn't happy by the end and that's why you... Well, I. I think really fallen in love for the first time with the architect of my house and who I married. You know, being an editor of one of the big magazines is a very sort of open sesame opportunity. You meet tons of people, Mm -hmm. people that want to be in the magazine, obviously. There was a man in New York in the the 70s who was very famous called Earl Blackwell. Mm-hmm. Do you know his name? Yes. And he was, um, I don't quite know how you describe him. He was a lovely, lovely human being. He was kind of, I suppose, a super PR man in a way. And his girlfriend was little tiny Eugenia Shepherd. He was about, about four foot eleven. A brilliant writer. And he became a good friend of mine and introduced me to all kinds of people. So the man that I was really in love with, we actually married on Bill Levitt's yacht in Monte Carlo Harbor, which at the time was a very very big story all over the place. And John Fairchild, while I was at Bazaar, wrote very, very nice things about me and my work. When I went to Vogue, 
he wasn't at all happy and he started writing not exactly unpleasant things but sort of something like the controversial Shirley Lord mm -hmm. with a question mark. Okay, excuse me, sorry to interrupt. Right. Uh, Darling, uh, this is this is my husband. We, we married hi. last month. We married in the pandemic. Oh, hi. congratulations. He's a painter, very good one. Well, you were saying that John Fairchild had oh. been very nice to you when you were at Harper's. I didn't realise how important Women's Way Daily was, actually. Mm -hmm. Very, very important at the time. Because um, he brought a new vibrancy to the writing of fashion. And he had his, he had, um, like Nancy Mitford, the in and out, you know, and very catty, but everybody wanted his approbation, so it was, could be quite tricky. Anyway, Alex Lieberman, who was really the powerhouse at Vogue, I was at Bazaar, then I went to Vogue because of Alex. And while I was at Vogue, a very, dear friend of mine who was the head of an advertising agency called Leo Cominson said to me, you know, do you really just want to be writing about mascara and lipstick and don't you want to run something? And a couple of people had come to me to ask if I'd like to have my own line and talked about subchapter S and borrowing a great deal of money, which didn't appeal to me at all and I didn't want to go and look for warehouses and I didn't really want to look after people's social security and I realized I wasn't an employer, I was an employee. Well paid, loving my job. So, I mean, people would say, don't talk about getting paid for what you love to do. That's not very helpful to any of us, <laughs> but I did. That's how I felt. And even though it meant possibly having a success, I just, it just wasn't in me to do that. I didn't have that instinct. But anyway, this man, Leo Clemenson, was very, very persistent. And not soon after, I sort of regretted it, but he, when Colgate bought Helena Rubenstein, he asked me to come in and, and to be, to help run it. And so I was five years, I suppose you could say, in the real world. I didn't even know what P&L or any, you know, it wasn't my kind of mindset at all. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot and I traveled all over the world. And what exactly was your role? At I, was, I was vice president um, with just one step above me to the presidency which I never, never really wanted. But I was a decision maker, certainly on products, product development. You know, I never realized they had something called the Blue Book, where even the price of the amount of electricity you spent at night mm -hmm. went into the cost of a lipstick. So it was really a enforced financial training to run a company. Mm -hmm. And I created something called the Beauty Breakfast, which I took all over the world. I have tons and tons of copy on it, which uh, everything I served, you could put on your face. And I did, mm. in front of audiences in Sydney, Indonesia, everywhere. 
and it was based on five things. When I went to Australia, which I did quite a bit, because that's where Helene Rubinstein first made her money. Have you been? No. No. Well, the, the press make a big fuss about anybody coming in, because it's so far away, mm-hmm. I guess. So when I arrived, they said, you know, you're the new madam, because Helene Rubinstein was always called madam. And I said, no, 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 I'm just one of the rare women in the top echelon of people running it, mostly men. And uh, so my program was five things as to really how to stay looking young and feeling young. The first way out in front was nutrition. I had, I had examples of everything. The second was movement. The third was sleep, nutrition, exercise, sleep. And then the fourth was sex, which I'll explain in a minute. And the fifth was skincare, the products. And they would follow me like Pied Piper to the counter wherever I went. And the sex part was that before we're born, part of our embryo breaks away to become the brain. So the, the brain is an ectodermal function. It's more linked, the brain is more linked to the skin than any other organ of the body. So it has a great deal to do when a woman's in love and is loved back and has good sex, her skin is very good. Grief is a great, it damages the Mm -hmm. skin. And stress, anxiety. And when she's not happy in love, it can show on her skin. So there was real value in what I was telling. So when I arrived at Sydney, the next morning, the Sydney Morning Herald had Sex is good for the skin, says new madam. <laughs> so that was the first trip I made to Australia. It was very successful. But I did not, I really did miss journalism. And even though it was, it was a wonderful learning experience, um, it was tough. And particularly as Colgate were not the kind of owners who, who should have really owned a cosmetic company. They didn't have the understanding. Yeah. And today, you know, Rubenstein is a little bit in Europe, but otherwise it's, it's nowhere. Yeah. Are you interested in skincare and yeah. Be- beauty? Yeah. You have a very good skin. Oh, thank you. And wonderful brows. Thank you. <laughs> brows, luckily, I was born with. Just never brows touched them. Fantastic. You don't? No. Well. Um, were you always interested in beauty? Or did that, uh, so did that, or was that more something that you fell into? I fell into, yes. But I have to say, I wasn't really interested in fashion because I found, you know, it very tedious. I covered fashion, obviously, I went to Paris, but I found it very, it, it was, in, I mean, the, the Parisian salons were very glamorous and there was a, a sense of luxury that didn't really happen in England or here. But I found it, after all the anticipation of arriving and then waiting for the show, and then it's all over in 10 minutes, I just wasn't inspired. I much preferred learning about beauty. And I I had a lot of really, you could say, scoops, because one of the most important things was that really, there had been no, when I was running 
the beauty of Bergen Bazaar. There had been no federal money spent on the study of normal skin. It was always diseased skin. Mm. And it wasn't until the moonshot that really serious federal money went into this, the study because they had to see if the astronauts could live in their suits being totally encased, you know? So that was really, that led to people like Estee Lauder giving a great deal of money to dermatologists and the start, because before that, I used to see, obviously, Charles Revson and Estee all the time, all, all of the people that run beauty companies. And Charles Revson said, there'll never be any money in skincare, um, not realizing that through the different things that were found out from the moonshot, there would be real benefits that the skin could actually benefit from. They learned a huge amount then. Mm -hmm. That started a whole... That's really... Uh, the beauty business saved the magazines. In the 70s, when everything changed, music and fashion and people, parents wanted to emulate their children rather than the other way around. That really caused a great uh, dearth of advertising, as you can imagine. So the beauty business brought it back again, and I was very instrumental in that when I was at Bazaar and Nemberg. So I was five years in the business world, which was, was very valuable. During that time, my beloved husband died suddenly of a heart attack, very young. That was, it was a tough time. But by then, I had realized that New York was where I should be for work. And I had, I mean, I, I think I did well here because I just, in the beginning, just got up, got dressed, went to work loving it and didn't think about any of the politics. You know, I wasn't perfect, but I was really just totally zeroed in on what I was doing. So never more thought of going back to London. So again, Alex Lieberman, I, I used to see him, he always said he was like me, that he was an employee and not an employer. Today you mention his name at Condé Nast, they don't know him. That's too sad. He was a huge yeah. power, you know, yeah. absolutely. Oh, he was, well, actually, he certainly was more of an editor than Grace Mirabella. But I think when Anna came on the scene, and he had certainly a lot to do with bringing her there, I think he realised how powerful she was. I don't think he cared for that so much. Anna's been wonderful to me. I was very helpful to her in her early days at Vogue because Grace Mirabella obviously didn't trust her. She has been wonderful to me and I'm still very much connected, as ancient as I am, I'm still connected with Vogue and I send her ideas and every year I spend a long weekend with her and her family because, of course, I knew her father and I knew her brothers and sister. And um, I, not last year, not for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then, so Alex asked me to come back and it was just perfect timing because I had to decide whether to renew my contract and I really didn't like working for Colby. And also, they were losing money, Rubenstein. They, they should never have really been in the cosmetic business, you know. They were really much more 
washing powder. <laughs> and then some friends arranged, because I was a widow, arranged for me to meet A. Rosenthal. It was actually at the Four Seasons. I was having a business lunch, and he was there with Beverly Silf, the opera singer, who was a great, great friend of his and of mine. And she coughed <coughs> very deliberate way. And the person I was with said, what's that all about? And I said, well, she would like me to meet the man she's lunching with. And he said, I don't think he's for you. And I said, well, he's the editor of the New York Times. So he said, drink your coffee and go. <laughs> it was the mid eighties when you went back to Vogue and when you met? Yes, a. I went back in 1980. Okay. And I met Abe in, uh, 85. Mm -hmm. It was sort of an arranged match, really, with Barbara Walters and I think my wedding picture's on the piano somewhere. And Barbara Walters and Beverly were my bridesmaids, oh. matrons of honor. And of course, I left out the fact that just before I went back to Vogue, yes, because I was still running Rubenstein, and uh, Judy Krantz had written this book, Scruples, mm -hmm. and got $3 million, which at the time seemed astronomical. And a good friend of mine was Helen Gurley-Brown, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan, and her husband, who was a wonderful film producer called David Brown. And I said, you know, I'm sure I could write something like that. And they said, well, go ahead. I said, well, I, I can't give up my job at Vogue and just in the hopes, you know. So he said, do an outline and a first chapter and I'll send it to Mort Janko, who's one of the best agents. So Dominic Nickdown, who's a good friend of mine, was very amused because my outline was 100 pages, which was not what they meant. But anyway, Mort Janko took me on. And my first book was my most successful which was really about my life in Barbados. I mean, it was set in the tropics. It was called Golden Hill. Still sells today, believe it or not. And so I had, I was doing that as a sideline. And I, I feel very lazy now because Simon, Alice Mayhew, Simon & Schuster, who alas has died, was very keen for me to do my memoir. I wrote my, I was asked to do my autobiography when I was 28, which unfortunately I did. It was called Small Beer at Claridge's, which is an English expression, as you probably know, small beer. And Spy Magazine did everything to try and find it. But luckily, I mean, this is years ago when Spy was at its worst and its height. They, they had an award on the notice board if anyone could find it, but they didn't because at those days they used to devote a page to the New York Times and they would show Punch, the owner, and Abe, the editor, and then one other luckless writer. And when I came on the scene, they put my head there and wrote terrible things about me. They wrote about, as you know, all people. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to Abe, we got married, and he died 11 years ago. But we were together a long time. Really, I, I left Vogue just at the height of the dot-com 
because Sam Waxel asked me to run iBeauty, you know, the one who went to jail, right. Martha Stewart. Oh, okay. Yeah, iBeauty, look it up. And uh, I, but, but luckily, I still remain friendly with Anna. And so, um, as it really wasn't a competition, I became, a, I was on the masthead as a contributing editor. And so now I'm involved with all kinds of different things. Are you working on your memoir or? I was, but I've been very lazy. I've had quite a lot of health issues, unfortunately, because I had a bad accident. I fell down a fridge staircase and I damaged both my knees terribly. So they se it separated the, um, the quads from the muscles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had big operations on both knees, but I am disabled now. But you know, I still get about. And luckily, I, it just is luck, I think, that I've still got most of my marbles and my memory. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Um, I mean, I definitely think that you should, at some point, pick up your memoir again if you feel up to Yes, it. yes. When you were, you know, writing the you know, um, Golden Hill and Faces and everything, and still working at Vogue, how did you, you know, when did you write them? How did you? At weekends. Weekends. Yeah. I could never write a word in the week. I was much too involved with writing for Vogue. But one of the lucky things with David, the architect that died, we found a lovely house in Belport. Mm -hmm. I lived there for 40 years. And uh, it, we were 300 feet on Great South Bay. Beautiful, beautiful garden at three acres. And I, in, in a little garden that we built, I actually had a plug into one of sort of a tree and I wrote a lot out there so I, I spent weekend and I thought with Abe that I would be writing a lot too and I, I did but he was a different kind of writer he used to walk about the house not saying anything but composing in his head if he was going to write mm -hmm. so he would burst into where I was writing <laughs> burst out again but I think if you, I mean, I, I, the old, really, I used to wake up in the middle of the night and write down a great, compelling sentence, you know? And uh, th there it would be to continue. But I think if you have physical problems, it does take your mind off that, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But you never know. I could, I, I did write about 100,000 words of my memoir. That's, that's quite a lot, so, yeah. yeah. So. Are you a writer too? I mean, yeah. is that how you consider yourself? I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of my, all my published work is more sort of history and some journalism, but... What part of history do you... I did my degrees in fashion history. Oh. But... Um, well, that would be very interesting. What I'd really love to do is the kind of novels you do wrote. I love... Fiction. Yeah, fiction, and of that sort of type of, like, Judith Krantz yes. and Well, you probably could. Yeah, I need to sit down and do it, I guess. 
Well, I'm afraid that is true, no. really. I mean, there's no good talking about it. No. But at the same time, I don't think you necessarily have to have a full... I mean, I all, every book I wrote, as I said, I had a 100-page outline for the one that I liked most, which was sort of ridiculous. But then it did concentrate very much on the history in the Caribbean. I mean, I, and that's what... I had a wonderful editor, and, and she said, now we've got to take the journalist out of the author mm-hmm. because I would get... I would get involved in a particular piece of legislation in Trinidad, and I, before I knew it, I would be writing that into the book, you know. And it was already a, quite a large book. I think, really, to if as you love fashion, really, if you just have a character, and you start writing about the character, male or female, other things will come, and then it starts to happen, you know. Did you read the paper today? No. Well, the Times today, in its D section, has a very interesting piece that might make a basis for a novel for you. It's how the role of editor-in-chief has totally changed and is the only one left. Mm -hmm. In other words, there isn't this oracle or this amazing person anymore. It's a team, but it's a, it's Vanessa Freeman wrote it with three other people. It's very, very interesting. Oh, it's a silly thing to say, because who knows? But I think I'm not a tech person. I can just about get by. But I, I'm not sure if I could have written books, had two jobs, a very demanding husband in the age of tech, because yes. it's too alarming. You know, my, by the way, my son, my eldest son, I'm very proud of because he's just written his... He's an academic. He's the Distinguished Professor of English Literature at Pace University. And um, he's just written his first non-academic book, which is the first biography of Clive Bell and the making of modernism. Wow. And it's coming out... I'm having lunch with him next week and we're going to Shakespeare because it arrives in America that day. Wonderful. It's been public, and the reviews have been I'll extraordinary. I'll have to look out for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm so proud of him. That's really wonderful. That sounds like something I'd love to read. Yeah, I mean, this is... I, if I know, obviously, I'm a little biased, but it's a really good read. And he was hugely responsible for giving, um, well, as he said, modernism the whole change of regarding art, you know, mm-hmm. and include obviously Picasso and all the but actually Clive Bell was one of the people that made people look at it and take it seriously instead of scoffing at it. Mm-hmm. And also he was very much involved in the creation of Bloomsbury. Yes. And Mark, it, my son is called Mark, it's really amazing how things happen because he was approached recently. The British Vogue, by the way, I think is outstanding. I I don't know if you get to look at it, but the editor, I think, is just doing a marvelous job. It makes you believe that magazines can still exist. And when all this happened, I think it's Kim Jones is the new designer for Fendi. Mm -hmm. And he grew up very near Charleston and the whole Bloomsbury era. And so Rizzoli 
are doing a book on Fendi and him, Kim Jones, and they wanted an expert on... Uh, my, my son is totally an expert, a world authority on Virginia Woolf. He started the society, and when he became an American, he was chosen to represent America in Moscow at the first Virginia Woolf conference. So we'd solely have asked him, Mark, if he will be a consultant on the book on, on Fendi, Kim Jones, Bloomsbury. Wow. And now he's just been asked to write the introduction to it. Wonderful. So he said, I've always resisted your war, mother, but now I'm in it. Yeah. So I'm it very, found its way to him. Very, I'm very proud of him. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. It must, be, it must be really nice to see your children become successful. And yes, very. Oh, I'm incredibly lucky. Poor Peter lost his daughter um, to brain cancer. She was brilliant also. She got a first at Oxford. Just outstanding, wonderful woman. She had never been ill. Thought she had a sinus infection. And it was the brain cancer that's at the moment. There's no light at the end. The geoblessing, there's no light at the end of the tongue. That's really scary. So he, yeah. I lost her. Do I still sound English or not? You do. You sound very English. It's funny because, you know, my children say, Mother, you've become a Yank. But most people... I mean, I've never attempted. I I mean, I've lived here over 40 years now. And it's it's strange. I hate, actually, to hear my voice if sometimes I hear a recording on the... You know, it just sounds not frightfully, frightfully, but a bit too English to me. <laughs> anyway, there it is. Um, no, I think it's good to, to... I always like when people still have their original accents. You know. Just people are always like, why don't you have an... Why do you... Didn't you get a British accent while you were living in England for so long? And I'm like... How long did you live there? Um, I was there for 11 years as oh. a child. And then on and off right. after... But well, that's quite a long time, you know, as a child. It's really... Yeah. So I know when I'm with British people, it comes out a little more, but... I yes, I would say you do have a slight intonation. Do you have brothers and sisters? A brother. He's in Germany. Oh. I've not seen him for a while because of the pandemic. Were you here the whole time? Yes. Yes, I mean, we visited friends mm-hmm. in uh, Connecticut... And, and tomorrow we're going for the weekend to friends in Amagansett. So we visited friends, but we were here, yeah. And we married by Zoom. Oh, wow. Because we'd actually been together a very long time. And I didn't want to get married again too many times. And uh, but Peter just is fantastic. He looks after me so well. And then Cuomo came on because I, I, in those days I watched him all the time and of course City Hall is still closed mm-hmm. I don't know, it may be just open but I mean last month it was definitely closed and had been all so he allowed that really the whole point is the licence so he allowed you could get that by Zoom but you had to make an appointment and it was, you had a certain time I think it was 7.30 in the morning to call and get the appointment. So we we had a we have a wonderful computer expert who's become quite a friend of ours. He was one of the managers at Apple. 
So we had the date, and it was also early in the morning, I think more like 8.30, and it was tough, the woman, really. We had to have all the documents of our past life, you know, divorce papers, death certificates. And without Leo, we would have never done it because we had to show them. It was something. But anyway, we got it. (laughs) When did you get married? Well, actually, (laughs) this sounds very funny. A very close friend of mine, of course, it had to be small, but wanted to still have a beautiful party. And then we got the certificate. And unfortunately, uh, I had appendicitis last year. I was in and out of hospital because they didn't really know. Well, they did know, but I'd had another major operation and they they wanted to be bit very careful taking my appendix out rather to be boring about it. So it was very hard to make the date. Anyway, cut a long story short, we married here just with the, the commissioner of police, Ray Kelly, is a very close friend, and he became a minister to marry us, just was just asking my housekeepers, no one. But we didn't tell anyone, but we just wanted to, because we had the license. So then, our official date is when my friend gave this, still small, but again Ray officiated, and so that was in October. That's our official date. Wonderful. When I was doing research, it seemed like you had a very sort of busy sort of social life in yes, New York. Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, well, not so much now, yeah. but definitely still, with. I guess yes, pretty busy. Have a lot, lot of friends. I was an only child, and I think that, uh, and I was rather a lonely child, but I was still a creative child because I was drawing magazines when I was a little girl and always writing, writing, writing. And my parents, as my autobiography of those days says, my parents were worried because they thought I told lies, which I suppose in a way I did, but it was living in a bit of an imaginary world, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think my friends have been important to me. And also marrying a very rich man and coming from poor circumstances. Although, of course, if you're in journalism, as in a way I was, at Rivali and, you know, in a lesser way, but still, I mean, I, in my book, there are all sorts of pictures. I interviewed everyone, Gary Cooper, Danny Kaye, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, and, and you get used to having a vernacular, I suppose. Well, you, if you do, if you feel at ease, which I, I was nervous. I was particularly nervous. I mean, one of my first interviews was Gary Cooper, who was so kind to me and so sweet. I must have looked like, well, I mean, I guess he flirted with me a bit, but I, I, I looked very young for my age. And I was young. I was 18, 19. And, uh, but I used to have this habit of turning my toes under before, you know, could stumble as I stood up. It was just a habit of nervousness. And then when I went around the world for Rubenstein, public speaking, I did a huge amount 
and again, in the beginning, I was very, very nervous. And Lawrence, I also interviewed Lawrence Olivia, and he, I always remember he said, talent is nervous. I always thought that was a wonderful line. Mm -hmm. And there was the people that say, you know, no bother, doesn't necessarily mean they're talented. And so, I mean, recently, I guess not maybe as much the pandemic, what have you been busy doing, you've been busy with? Well, I'm on the Peace Foundation. I've written quite a few things for them and for different programs that they're doing. Um, gosh, I'm, it's amazing how busy I am. Um, oh, yes, I'm also involved with a, a brilliant young woman in London who worked for George Weidenfeld who has an anti-terrorism program. There's always some something, you know, that I'm, I was thinking I was writing to her today mm -hmm. about one of her programs. And uh, just really, you know, when I was your age, and you look very young, I'm sure you're, what, early 20s? No? 37. 37? Well, you're a great advertisement for beauty then. <laughs> well, I would have said, I was going to say 28, and then I thought maybe a bit younger. Because your long hair yeah. is, is a very young, a very useful, and your parting. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a very Bloomsbury look. <laughs> There's a picture, your, your, my, the book is full of fo wonderful photographs, my son. And there's an early one of uh, Vanessa, Virginia Woolf's sister, married Guy Bell. But she had masses of affairs. Well, the whole Bloomsbury thing, yeah. as you know. Was, and there's a wonderful picture of Vanessa cutting, trying to think whose hair it was, some very famous person. And she has hair like you. Very, I mean, she did that. I'm sure she usually put it up. Mm -hmm. Do you put yours up sometimes? When it, when it's hot, mostly. <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I'm not the best at doing oh. beautiful things with it. So. so. Well, I mean, you could just because you've got great bones, you could just comb it up a little bit and then hang it down at the back, couldn't you? Yeah. yeah well, I wear a ponytail. Whatever, your ponytail. Yeah. yeah. That must look very pretty. Anyway, it's it's a good question. Like, I haven't really got good answers to give you because they sound horrible, like going to doctors, which I have to do a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't need to be doing much more than just enjoying your life. Well, just do you miss writing about beauty? Do you miss it? or No. No. And I really don't find much, as far as beauty is concerned, I, I really never learn anything. I, kn I know it all. I know that sounds terribly no, I, boastful, no. I mean, I but there's nothing really that when I read someone or a company is just, well, obviously, but I, oh, that was another thing that I did break the story, that um, Johnson & Johnson, well, actually, it was someone called Dr. Kligman, who was a wonderful dermatologist, who in treating acne, particularly 
uh, older acne, uh, what do they call it, but, you know, my age. Mature? She gets, yeah, she, and he was terribly successful. And through his trials and his attempts to help that kind of acne, with the help of vitamin A, that's how the first real wrinkle remover came about, Renova. And I, I was right at the beginning of that. I broke the story in Belga. I always really, I think, coming from London, where you had to do so much more. You, when I came here, I was amazed that beauty editors didn't write because mm. they had a writing department, you know. And I said, it's impossible, I have to write. So, and so I, I see a lot of things now that sound as if they're new, and they're not. Yeah, I actually found, I guess you did a syndicated column for a while. I did. In, in, the, in the 70s, and I... You really did your homework. <laughs> I found it, you know, from, I guess, in the Pittsburgh newspaper, in the Philadelphia yes, newspaper. Yeah. Um, and all of the articles could have been written today. Like, it's all the same information that yeah. I find... There's not much that's... And, of course, you know, the Cosmetic Act has not... Has, is 1938. It's mm-hmm. never actually been rewritten. I mean, it's really the wording that is so important. That mm-hmm. I remember when Estee Lauder came out with age-controlling cream, and none of us could believe it, because in a sense, that was going against the act, because it's what you said that really mattered. And if you talked about age-controlling, but she got around it. That, that was when they discovered that uh, the sun was not only causing cancer, but it was aging you. I mean, that I was at the beginning of that. It's so obvious mm-hmm. now, but they people didn't realize it aged you as well as hurt you, hurt your skin. And so Estee put a little sunscreen into some of her moisturizers called it age controlling. So in a sense, there was an element of truth in it. Mm-hmm. She was great marketing woman and Leonard also brilliant just brilliant must have been wonderful to meet and become they were much more exciting days I think I mean I really want you to read this article today because in a sense it's all team orientated there's no one person but you realize you don't meet the exciting people you know Mm -hmm. I mean there was so many characters. They were really remarkable. How much of reality did you put into the people in your books? Like, you know. Oh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you will. I mean, it seems like, you know, with faces, you can really get a sense of your interest in plastic surgery. Yeah, your interest in the sort of science and of it yeah. all. I've ne- never, I, I mean, I've been offered everything by all plastic surgeons and and I mean they some of them are brilliant but I don't quite how to say this they've all had an off day mm-hmm. and so and today dermatology which used to be the lowest thing on the, the whole the discipline area nobody wants to be a dermatologist today it's the hottest thing around dermatology can do much more than as much almost as plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. You know? And there are some of them that are just outstanding. 
I do love reading, I must say. And I, that's one thing I did not have much chance to do when I was doing all these different things at once. Yeah. And also, I mean, my children were away at school, admittedly, and in England, it, as you know, it's so shocking because my, both my sons went away to school at eight, mm -hmm. which in England is yeah, normal. considered normal. But in America, it isn't. Would you prefer, do you prefer living here than in London or England? Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and your husband's American, I presume. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been back since Brexit happened. You know, it's been, I, I haven't been back to London in two years. I was supposed to go last March, but, so I... Yeah, no, I, well, none of us can. Yeah. And it's, it's in bad shape now again. That's what I read, you and know. And I don't here. understand why. I think Brexit was a terrible mistake. I agree. Is any of your family still in England? No, I, well, my, my youngest son is, uh, lives in Guernsey. Okay. And I became a great-grandmother. Right. <laughs> so, Wonderful. And I will have a great-grandson this month. Congratulations. <laughs> so, but I'm not... Yes, of course, I love my children, but I'm not one of those... You know, I can't wait for it to happen. Mm -hmm. I had them so young, you know, which is good in one way. Mm -hmm. But and that's why I guess I can become a great grandmother. But <laughs> at the time, you know, that I didn't say that to you, but it was very true that I, I was so fixated on getting to Fleet Street. But at the same time, my friends all had their little one carat diamond ring. So I wanted to get engaged, too. I mean, I didn't want to be left out, but that wasn't, men were never, you know, that wasn't my focus at all. So I did get engaged and married very young, at my first son. And did you, how long have you lived in this apartment? Oh. Since eight? Yes, uh, 85. Thank you so much. No, I enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Shirley Lord. If you enjoyed it, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing with your friends. I would love to get these conversations out to anyone who might benefit from them. Please head to our website to read a short article and to see a slideshow of photos from throughout Shirley's life. I'll be back next week with a great conversation about diaries, biographies, and royalty. See you soon.